every 10% increase in the implementation of the policy, people were 53% more likely to walk, they had 22% more likely to have better sense of community, 8% more likely to have better mental health, and 40% less likely to be a victim of crime. Now, goodness, that is a great success story. Hello, you're with the Prevention Works podcast. I'm Gretchen Miller, and on this episode, how urban planning, streets, houses, schools, public transport and open spaces profoundly influence population health. Prevention Works comes to you from the Australian Prevention Partnership Centre. Its focus is chronic disease and the many different areas of research that could help us lower a surprisingly high chronic disease rate in this country. Just to give you a sense of this, in Melbourne, by 2050, I think it's 500 schools that need to be built in the next 30-odd years. That's just the schools. There's one suburb that's got 54 babies a week being born. That's two classrooms of children. Can you imagine how you deal with that? Today, Professor Billy Giles Cortai. She's one of the most cited academics in the world and one of the Prevention Centre's chief investigators. She's also the Urban Futures Enabling Capability Platform Director at RMIT University. And she heads up a multidisciplinary team of researchers from universities around the country. And first up, she tells us when she realised the power of planning in the personal health of entire communities. When I was doing my PhD, I needed to get data from the Department of Planning. So my supervisor and I went in to see the executive director and my supervisor made a really good statement to Paul Frewer, who was the executive director at the time. He said, you know, you don't realise this, but you are a public health organisation, that you can do more to promote health than we can in the health sector. And the decisions that you make will have a profound impact on the health and well-being of the people who you're building those communities for. And it really was a statement that stayed with me, and I thoroughly believe that. The people who build the built environment lay down the foundation for centuries for people, and that will have a profound impact on the people who live there. So it's a really big responsibility and I guess what I see my role is providing evidence that will support their decision making. I just want now that now we're getting an evidence base, a growing evidence base, I think it's incumbent on the planning profession, on the people who build the built cities to actually take notice, to take us back to where we were, health and planning completely combined. You just said that would take us back to where we were. What did you mean by that? Well, if you think about where city planning and public health came from, the roots of that was in industrialising cities around the globe where people were exposed to environmental pollution from very rapidly industrialising cities with all the exposure to pollution from there. And also because the people were very close together, so there was lots of infectious diseases, water and sanitation, no water and sanitation. And so this is where the city fathers really got together and said we've got to do something about this people are unhealthy they're dying prematurely typhoid cholera and they're also being exposed to all this pollution what you're talking about here is the birth of urban planning was intricately intimately inextricably linked to health yeah absolutely it was the beginning of civil engineering we started to do water and sanitation and immediately we saw waterborne diseases diminish 
massive impact. It's sort of heartbreaking to me that we still have cholera outbreaks. And you think, oh my God, this evidence is centuries old. How can that happen? But it was the beginning of public health, civil engineering and city planning. It's where it all started. And now we're looking back to planning saying, hold on, we've got diseases of the 21st century, which are the preventable chronic diseases. We cannot afford for you not to be involved in this because you laid down the foundations for good health-promoting behaviours. It's really a call to action to the city planners and, and urban designers and transport planners that this needs integrated planning across all of the different sectors to create a better future for our populations. When did they separate? Now, I think it's happened because we became complacent about the fact that we dealt with the disease, the pollution. And what we did was, because we thought we're doing good, that's why evaluation is so incredibly important. We had the car and we had the suburbs, we could spread people out and we thought that was a fantastic thing, it was going to produce much better outcomes. It's interesting actually, if you look at the old maps of cities, what you found was before the car, we used to plan along the rail and you could see where all the public transport routes, that's where all the houses went. But of course when the car came, we thought that we'd solved all the health problems because people were separated, there was no infectious disease, no one really thought about the unintended consequences of that. And it's only been you know, way down the track that we can actually see people becoming more socially isolated, people being more separated from land use, us not being able to provide the infrastructure because we're separated so much. It's, it does, we can't afford to deliver the infrastructure that people need for daily living. So it's really a return to our disciplinary roots and saying, hold on, there is this intricate relationship between health and planning. That's the really critical thing. We have to put in place the benchmarking, monitoring and evaluation to make sure that we don't harm the people that we're serving. Do no harm. Yeah, well, that's what I've often thought. For people who build the city, they should be signing like the public health people, the, the doctors do. First, do no harm, the Hippocratic Oath. And I really believe that there needs to be much more paying attention to the fact that by our actions, we can produce harm. It might be unintended, and that's fine, but I think we need to think about it. What you're saying really here is the trick is to be open to being multidisciplinary. We have to be multidisciplinary, we have to be self-critical, and we have to be not wedded to our own agenda. And I don't think we should fear evaluation. We're all trying to do our best. I work with policymakers all the time, and I know that they are trying to do their best. As the nation's expert in the livability of our various communities, and indeed you were Australia's premier woman researcher in 2015, what sort of place do you live and why is it ideal for you? Well, thank you, Gretchen. I live in a street where I've got a pub down the corner and I've got two cafes, which are our locals. I live four streets away from the swimming pool and I jog down there in the morning when I'm always running late to meet my swimming friend. And I have Brunswick Street, two streets away, and that's got lots of little shops and services there that I can use. I have a supermarket nearby, which I can walk to with my little shopping trolley. And then I can walk to work, which is a real privilege. It's a 25 minute walk. So during to walk to and from work, I have a 15 minute walk a day, or I can ride my bike, which is about 15 minutes. And I have great public transport. I've got three different public transport routes that can take me into the city. So you can see I'm completely privileged and I regard it as a highly livable place and it's surrounded by people with dogs and different types of different age groups which I also love you know from children through to older people but it's got a real mix of demographics so I really like that. So key to that then is community 
walkability. And really the walkability is everything, isn't it? Do we take that into account when we're planning our cities in Australia? I mean, to me, walkability, how walkable your neighbourhood is, the foundation of a good place, of a good city, because it provides the structure. And also it provides the opportunities, as you say, for people to walk around their neighbourhood. But if we don't get the foundation right, uh, a walkable neighbourhood at the heart of a livable city, then we'll never get it right. So very spread out, you know, cul-de-sacs, very spread out cities, that's a real problem because you can't provide shops and services. So what you really need is, at the heart of it all, we need to be planning for more compact, higher density development. I'm not talking high rise. I don't mean, you know, having the 20 storey building, but I do mean thinking about how we can design houses that still give the same floor space, but are designed in a different way. So people, houses are more compact and they've got a little bit of garden. So people, everyone has a garden um, that they have then, you know, some parks nearby, but not too many parks, not too many small parks, because that sucks out, that spreads people apart. So you want to have people a little bit more compact so that you can have the shops and services and the public transport that really makes a place livable. This is Prevention Works, and we're talking urban planning and its powerful effect on physical and mental health with Professor Billy Giles Cortai. And I don't think you can walk through Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, Darwin or Adelaide without seeing cranes everywhere and apartments going up. But are we really thinking about what we're doing here? Stay with us as Billy tells us what we need to plan for as our population grows. Okay, so what we have is Australia's population is going to double by 2050. And that means that we have to plan very carefully. So there's two ways of doing that. There's higher density and more high rise in the inner city and then thinking about medium rise to high rise in the middle suburbs, which have got a lot of amenity. And then there's also the outer suburban development. And we need to be thinking about density across each of those areas, a more compact outer suburban development, which means that you've got more people to be able to service the shops and services. In the middle level suburbs, we need to get the density right and locate it well near public open space and near where there's amenity. And then in the inner city, we need to be doing the same thing. And we need to be thinking very carefully how we do that. If children are going to live there, we need to cater for that. We need to provide age appropriate things for them to do, not just the swimming pool and the really fancy things that people tend to put into this high rise apartments, but actually age appropriate things. So if they're little kids, they need places to play. If they're teenagers, they need places somewhere to bounce a ball. They also need schools. <laughs> Absolutely, they need schools. And they need, if we're really going to make those inner city places work, we, what we need, and childcare. So we really need to have that close to home so people aren't getting in their cars travelling because that's going to put more congestion on the roads. Are we doing that? We're trying, and I think that's the thing that people don't get. I always say, you know, the government's not Father Christmas, and we have a lot of pushback uh, from the community about how we should be doing things, but the government's not Father Christmas. Just to give you a sense of this, in Melbourne, by 2050, I think it's 500 schools that need to be built in the next 30-odd years. That's just the schools. There's one suburb that's got 54 babies a week being born. That's two classrooms of children. Can you imagine how you deal with that? 
In terms of the policy frameworks, we've done a study that across the whole of the country. I don't believe that we've got strong enough policy to create walkable, livable neighbourhoods across the country. I just do not believe that we've got quantitative policies that will deliver what we say that we want. They need to be quantitative and they need to be tighter and they need to be evidence-based and I do not believe we have that. We do in Perth, for example, we did a big evaluation of what we call the livable neighbourhood guidelines. This was a new state subdivision design code that was going to create better, more sustainable, more pedestrian-friendly neighbourhoods. And so we did an evaluation of that. And what we found was when we did the evaluation that the policy was only 47% implemented. One of my PhD students now, postdoc, Paula Hooper, a fantastic piece of work, she went through the policy and she measured all the things that could be quantified. And that's really important because when we're developing policy that's going to create these neighbourhoods, they need to be quantifiable. So how much density, how close should things be? And we need to quantify it, not just leave it very open because then it's open to interpretation. But what she did, she measured everything. And what she found was that the policy was only 47% implemented, which you could say, well, that's a real problem. But what she also found, which I think is really fascinating, that for every 10% increase in the implementation of the policy, people were 53% more likely to walk. They had 22% more likely to have better sense of community, 8% more likely to have better mental health, and 40% less likely to be a victim of crime. Now, goodness, that is a great success story. What we need to then focus on is how do we make sure we get good implementation of the policy. So if we could just get those policies implemented, what we would see is much better health outcomes for the community. We'd see people more likely to walk. We'd see better sense of community. We found that be better mental health and people being less likely to be a victim of crime. Of course, people feeling unsafe is very bad for people's health. And then there'd be the long-term health outcomes. These are the short-term risk factors for health outcomes, so cardiovascular disease, diabetes 2, these sorts of things, we would see much better health outcomes if we were able to deliver that. So people would be healthier and happier. You know all about this because of some groundbreaking research that you've done recently, which measures right down to the micro scale and really micro. Tell me about that work. Okay, so we've been, we were funded by the Australian Prevention Partnership Centre to do a national study, um, the National Livability Study. And we've defined livability. We say a, a livable community is safe and socially cohesive. It's got to be environmentally sustainable. It has affordable housing, but it's no point having that housing, affordable housing, if it's not linked by public transport, walking and cycling infrastructure to all the things that you need for daily living. You've got to be able to get to work, shops and services, schools, all those sorts of social infrastructure, recreational opportunities. So that was our premise. That's a livable community. If your area is extremely livable, then actually you have a much healthier population. And that's great for everybody. It's great for taxpayers. It's great for the community, of course. It's great for your hip pocket Health is at the basis of all this. Yeah, so what we wanted to do was to see how was the livability of a neighbourhood associated with health. Did, you know, If you lived in a livable community, was it associated with health? So our first job was to look at what are the associations between all these elements of livability, all the different domains of livability, and health outcomes. So that's what we did first. So then we had an evidence base to go with. And then what we did was we mapped it across all the capital cities of Australia, saying... Do these cities have 
access to public transport and frequent services? Do they have access to public open space? Do they have access to a walkable community? Do they have access to affordable housing? And then we were able to map it and we were able to show if this is what we want in our Australian cities, for whom is it being delivered? So is it everyone that gets access to that or is it just some people? And what we found, of course, is it's just some people. And it tends to be people who are living in the inner cities, not people living on the urban fringe. So once you move away into the middle-level suburbs and certainly start getting out to the fringe, you're much less likely to have those things. And that's where the people who live out there often have worse health outcomes And part of it could be because of the way we're designing our communities. They're spending lots of time commuting. They don't have access to amenities so that children don't have things. They can't just walk to a tennis court or swimming pool, which you can in the inner city. So, you know, we wanted to look at that. So that's the sort of thing that we've been doing. And we've been able to map it and show it. And it's quite a graphic when you look at it and think, wow, that is really telling. And then what we can do then, if people pick it up, and we're obviously promoting and advocating it, TAPS has been terrific in, in advocating it for us, what we can do then is actually benchmark and monitor over time to see if we're changing anything. So this actually gets right down to every what you call residential parcel, which is in fact block of land with a home or a block of units on it you've actually measured it right down to that micro scale yeah we, are, we our question was that you know if you live in a certain house with certain attri- and you, what what were the attributes around your neighborhood that are health promoting so yes we were able to do that for every residential block in australia so where people live and so we were able to show what it's like living in that neighborhood and and what you've done is take publicly obvious information like is there a supermarket there how many bottle shops are in the area yes we i mean taps was very interested in the alcohol so whether there's alcohol both outlets bottle shops but also um on license so where you can go to a a hotel or restaurant so we've got all of that data and we're able to look at access to healthy food access to alcohol access to public open space affordable housing access to employment so yeah we've got quite a great snapshot of Australian cities and of course the alcohol accessibility isn't a health well it is a health indicator but usually a poor health indicator so everybody might say oh yeah I've got five bottle shops that's not a good thing (laughs) (laughs) no that's not a good thing well what we find is that people who have you know greater access to alcohol are more likely to have health related problems so more alcohol consumption that sort of thing so yeah and especially it's not actually just the alcohol if you've got no other choice and that's the whole point here so if you live out in the outer suburban areas and you've got no choice but alcohol outlets or gambling outlets which we haven't measured but would also be another one or fast food outlets or fast food if you've got no other choices then that's the problem It's not that it's anti-having access to alcohol, anti-having access to fast food. It's just that it's always been the way in health promotion that we talk about making the healthy choice the easy choice. And if if you've only got unhealthy choices, well, people obviously will choose those because that's their main choices. So this is really about equity. Our study is all about equity. How do we create more equitable places that are healthy and giving people every chance to live a healthy lifestyle that uh, they deserve and that we all deserve and will have a major impact on the health and well-being of our society. So if you're a disadvantaged person, it's a budget constraint to have two or three vehicles to be able to mobilise the family, then it's not really affordable living. It's affordable housing often out in the fringe with these big blocks, but it's not really affordable living because you have to run two or three cars. And the truth is that if we create socially isolating places, 
that is also bad for our health. There's quite a lot of studies showing that people who are socially isolated are more likely to die prematurely from you know, heart disease and that sort of thing anyway. Men and women, men like to think that they're tough and they don't really need people, but we find that people who are socially isolated, men and women, are more likely to die prematurely. So you know, I think the social isolation that comes from those environments can also be an impediment, but for, particularly for people who are low income, it's a double whammy because they don't have the money to be able to support themselves to be able to get around and have the choices that someone who's wealthy does. Talk about the software you use to do this. You use geographic information system software to map the policies to urban areas and to link these policies with residents' health data. Had that been done before? What were you doing there that was new? We use geographic information systems, which is sort of like a mapping software. So it's a bit like if you have a map, but it's digital. So we can overlay layers of data. So we can look at the street networks, we can add on top of it the housing lots, where the public open space is, where the shops and services are, where the employment is. So we can actually have these layers. As you imagine, it's like a garden of data layers. People have done this before. They haven't done it quite the same way that we've done it, because what we've done is we've chosen to look at every residential parcel in every capital city in Australia. So every residential lot, every block, someone will live there at all the places we've looked at. And we've also looked at policies. So in addition to using the what we call evidence-based ones, which we found were associated, we also did, which I don't think anyone's ever done before, is saying, well, what are the policies that each of the major capital cities are trying to achieve to create livable communities and are they being delivered? So for example, in Sydney, where we are now, its policy is that 100% of households should live within either 400 metres of a bus stop or 800 metres of a train stop and there should be a service every 30 minutes for a bus or every 15 minutes for a train. So we were able to map for who was that being delivered. Very few people in Sydney achieved that but we concluded that that was the best policy in Australia. What an aspiration, a fantastic aspiration and what we've suggested is that we should have short and medium term goals to achieve that. So I think what we were able to do with this study is do something quite unique, is actually reflect back how we're going in terms of policy and, you know, just say, well, you know, it's great to have policy, but is it being implemented? And I don't believe anyone's ever done that before. So what is the direct evidence of what you're saying? If I do live near a park, what's that going to do to the way I behave and therefore consequently my health? Okay, there's evidence for both adults and children that if you live near a park, for adults you're more likely to walk for recreation, you're more likely to have better mental health outcomes even if you don't use it. And although we haven't measured it, it also helps to cool the city. You know, obviously having green space in a city helps to make it cooler and there is other evidence that we haven't done but other people have. But we also find for children, the more different types of parks, public open spaces in their area, particularly for adolescent children, the more likely they are to be physically active. And if there's one thing you can do for your health is to be physically active. You know, it's really is the magic bullet. It's just, even if you've got other risk factors, if you're physically active, it really is a magic pill. You're with Prevention Works, a podcast all about preventative health from the Australian Prevention Partnership Centre. We're with Professor Billy Giles Cortai, and stay with us as Billy talks about what brought her to this point and when she realised a dramatic shift in approach was needed. Yeah, well, I started out my well my academic career in around 1992, and in 1986, the World Health Organisation had put out its goals for 
health promotion to its member states and said, if you want to promote health, these are the six things that you must do. And two of them were creating healthy public policy and creating supportive environments. Now, creating healthy policy is an interesting one. It's not creating health policy. It's creating policy that is healthy across the board. All policy should be health promoting. And it was a pretty radical idea at the time. It was, you know, it was 86 and I was done in my PhD and I started it in 93 actually. And you know, there wasn't much evidence around that. It was like rhetoric. It was a good idea, but there wasn't much evidence. So here was an opportunity to actually start to measure it. And so that's when I got really excited. And I started to think, well, what sort of behaviours could you look at? I guess I'm at the pointy end now where really my objective is in the last phases of my career is to see how much of what we've learned over the last 20 years, how much of that can we get translated into policy and practice? Because I think we know enough. It's not rocket science. It's just harder than rocket science to get into policy. So you started off encouraging people to be healthy using what was terribly trendy at the time, which was mass marketing. How has that shifted for you? Yes, yeah, so when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I got introduced to marketing and I got very excited. I thought, oh, yes, we can market health in the same way they can market toothpaste. You know, I thought, this is it. And I, I actually went into working in market research, so testing out products and uh, testing out packaging, coming out with health messages, uh, coming out with social marketing messages for all sorts of products. And I, one thing I did do in that job was I monitored the beer market nationally, and there was a beer war going on between Swan in the West and Foster's in the East. And, oh, Swan was so excited when we got 1% market share Oh, that was really exciting. And I started to realise the enormity of the task of just using marketing as the as a sole thing to change behaviour. Because, of course, in health, we want to get massive shifts. And that wasn't going to happen in a hurry. They do work. Mass media campaigns do work. We do see over time, if we, we persist in the same way that Coke does, if you keep on at it and marketing, anti-tobacco's advertising, as a good example of that, we see that you do see change over time. But in addition to the communication side, there needs to be something else to create an environment that's supportive. If you think about diet, for example, we have mass media campaigns saying eat a healthy diet and yet you've got so much exposure to an environment that's unhealthy. You've got the food marketers who market unhealthy food products. You go down to the street and you're bombarded with choices. You have vending machines that unhealthy choices. You are just bombarded. So, you know, it takes a lot of will to be able to let those health messages cut through. So I realised that I needed to do more than that. So what I started to think, well, I'd be interested in looking at the environment as opposed to just focusing on individuals. Because I think, you know, from an equity point of view, it's pretty tough if you're just telling people to eat a healthy diet or to, you know, to be physically active and they live in a non-supportive environment. I think this is an equity issue. And some people are lucky, like I am living in Fitzroy, absolutely privileged, but some people don't have that choice they're not able to walk their child to school and they're not able to walk to work as I can. And you were the first person, in fact, to measure this. What I think I did was first was actually look at the at the multiple factors that influence people, you know, because the old models used to be that we used to just focus on knowledge and attitudes and the social environments. The new model was that we think about attitudes, social environment, plus the built environment. And I think probably I was one of the first people to put in a study all of those things to measure 
what people thought, their attitudes, their beliefs, their confidence that they could change their behaviour, what their friends thought, what their family thought, whether they had social support to be physically active. But in addition to that, what was their environment like? Yeah, and what I found was actually quite interesting because when I looked at the relative influence, they're all relatively the same. If you lived in a supportive environment and you had a positive social environment and you had good attitudes, you were much more likely to be physically active. The last thing I want to ask you is how do you get governments to take up your recommendations? Because that's the next step, isn't it? Yeah, it's very challenging, but I think the the starting point is actually the way you work with policymakers and practitioners. You know, I like to, and I train my team to work with, not to work on. So we're not evaluating them. We're working with them to evaluate. And I think that's quite a different thing. So it's easy to point a finger and say that people have got it wrong. It's much harder to work out why it's not quite right and what you can do about it. So I've been very fortunate when I finished my PhD, I went back to the Department of Planning and said, oh, you know, I've finished my study and I, you, know, you gave me some data, I want to show you all about it. And I was very fortunate to meet a policymaker there who was just designing a new policy, the Livable Neighbourhood Guidelines, which we ended up evaluating. And he was so excited by the evidence that we were creating because he was writing a policy without any evidence base. And so he got very excited about what we're doing because suddenly we were providing evidence that spoke to the things that they were trying to do. So in the end, we evaluated that policy, but we did it with them. Whenever we found the results, the first people who heard about what the findings were and when things weren't going the way that they might have expected was them. What it meant was that they said, well, you're not really benchmarking our policy. We would like you to be benchmarking our policy much more closely. So we set up another study that actually went through, and that's when we looked at all the different things that they were trying to achieve, and we measured all of those, and we could tell them which ones were being implemented and which ones weren't. And so what we worked out, it wasn't the policy levers that were the problem. It was actually the policy implementation that was the problem. Now, that's very powerful evidence. If we just sat on the sidelines, oh, your policy's not working, you know, it's all a big failure. It's very easy to do that. Working out why it's not working is actually the real challenge, which then they've got something to work with. But they didn't feel, I don't think that they felt threatened by us because what we were doing was they were part of the journey and we worked with. And I think that's a real lesson for people. It's very easy to throw stones. It's very difficult to work out what to do. And I'm not pretending that I know what to do. I only know what to do by working with the policymakers that I work with. And it's a real pleasure and honour for me to have that opportunity. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for your time and uh, look forward to hearing what happens next. Thank you, Gretchen. It's a real pleasure for me to talk to you too. This has been Prevention Works, the podcast of the Australian Prevention Partnership Centre. And if you've enjoyed listening to Professor Billy Giles Courtai, why not check out our conversation with Professor Adrian Bowman, who's set to change up how we get physical as a nation. Just go to preventioncentre.org.au and do tell your friends and colleagues all about us. I'm Gretchen Miller. Catch you next time.